and driving through a country road. I think it was somewhere in Castleford. And as he was driving, he uh, spotted a three-legged pig in the field. He pulled over the side of the side of the road and asked the farmer, "Sir, I was driving and I w- was wondering why your pig only had three legs." The farmer answered, "That pig is a miracle pig. One day my house caught on fire and that pig went in, rescued my three children, turned the hose on, put out the fire, saved my house." About six months ago, a boy was drowning in a nearby pond. Pig goes in and saves the boy. That's great, said the man. He really sounds like a wonderful pig, but why does he only have three legs? The farmer exclaimed, a pig that good, you only eat one leg at a time. (laughs) I was hoping Jackie would be here. He'd he'd appreciate that. he would be the guy with a three-legged pig. <laughs> you know, uh, I really... A, a pig that, that, that good, you, you, you savor every leg. <laughs> you know, Solomon pursued pleasure like no man before him, nor any man after him not holding back any earthly pleasure known to man. But when he had it all, when he had arrived, he realized that it was all but grasping at the wind. Jesus said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? There really is no lasting profit in this world. The only real lasting profit lies in things of God. That's where true treasure lies. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Solomon also realized that everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to live, and a time to die. And that life was here to enjoy For it is a gift of God. And that God has placed within every human being a consciousness, an awareness of eternity, a longing for heaven in each heart. Solomon also realized just how soon people forget you. No matter how great you are, how popular, how successful, The next generation forgets you so fast. And that God is the only one who will give us eternal value. Solomon had visited the courtroom, the marketplace, the highway, and even his own palaces. Now he goes to the temple in which he he had built and watched worshipers come in and, and go. Praising God praying, sacrificing, and making vows before God, Solomon saw their empty vows and their insincere worship and their empty prayers as religious hypocrisy. They were putting on a face in the house of God. 
Verse 1 goes, before we get into God's Word, let's, uh, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just ask you to bless your Word, Lord, and just, uh, Lord, uh, bless this time we have together, Lord, that, that uh, you'd be glorified in this house. Lord, that you would find this a house of prayer. Lord, and that we would, uh, when we gather together as the body of Christ, Lord, that we wouldn't take it for granted, Lord, that we, uh, we are entering holy ground. Lord, be blessed in us and blessed through us, Lord God. Lord, help us not to be hearers only, but doers of your word. Lord, uh, send us out in your might, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 goes, chapter 5, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear, rather than give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. He says, walk prudently. In today's language, that's watch your step. Firstly, we, we need to recognize the holiness of God. And I, I couldn't help but think of how we take our assembling together as the body for granted. We... Uh, bring in our iPhones, our iPads, our little distractions. We come in laughing, joking, and, and carrying in conversation when we're praising the Lord, when we come to God's house of prayer. To walk prudently is inwardly to obey the command given to Moses. Take off your sandals, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Where Jesus commanded Moses, when Moses tried to get close, he said, hold it, Moses. Take off your sandals off your feet. The ground in which you stand is holy ground. And, you know, the mountain in which they were, they, he was standing wasn't a holy mountain. It was who was on the mountain. And uh, I, God doesn't dwell in buildings. In fact, up here where we lead worship, there used to be a big beer sign on Clagel's Market. It's not the building that's holy. It's the body of Christ that meets here that's holy. And when we gather as the body of Christ, it becomes sacred ground. He dwells in us. We need to take heed of the warning. Worship of God is the highest ministry of the church and must come from devoted souls and yielded hearts. To walk prudently means to behave yourself. The idea of righteous behavior is rephrased at the end of this section in the words, but fear God. And he goes on to say, and draw near and hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. We haven't arrived, gang. We're growing in Christ, and God is changing us. Little by little, 
from glory to glory, the Lord is changing us from the inside out. It is important to stay silent sometimes when we come into the house of God and just listen for God's voice and not give a foolish sacrifice. Do me a favor and turn with me to Luke 18. But keep your place in in Ecclesiastes. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus spoke this parable. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's really a lot to chew on there, because there's two men, and they were doing the right thing. They were going to the house of God to pray. And there were thousands around Jerusalem. They weren't going to the temple to pray. And these two men went to do the right thing. And I couldn't help but think, we really give the Pharisees a good Christian lumping in the church because uh, we kind of paint them as the bad guys. But the truth is they, set themselves apart for God's work. They consecrated themselves to God. As little children, they set themselves apart to study God's word, memorize the scripture, and they did all the right things. They went through ceremonial baths before they even opened God's word. They kept the law to the letter. They did a lot of good things. They did a lot of good things with people. But it's through all this self-doing and self-righteousness that their heart, a lot of times, strayed from God. Like this Pharisee, where he says, Lord, look what I've done. God, I'm, I'm so glad I'm not like them. Because what he did was correct. He, he said, I fast twice a week. I tithe of everything that I own. See, these are good things. But it came a, a point of pride to him. Look, God, I, 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 look what I do. And Jesus said, 
One went down to his house justified and the other did not. See, this uh, tax collector didn't even look up to heaven. He spoke six words in one letter. Lord, forgive me, for I am a sinner. I can't help. I, I, I go to a lot of uh, prayer meetings, and sometimes I'm afraid to speak because I, I, I listen to some of the guys, and their words are so eloquent and so perfect. And they go on and on for 10, 20 minutes. And, and I think, if I open my mouth, I'm going to sound like a fool. Because uh, I'm an uneducated Californian boy from Bell Gardens, California. But God looks at the heart. And it's not all the words that we speak. God looks into our heart. And that's what he wants to hear. Lord, forgive me. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Man is instinctively religious. But I have found it's not usually a good thing. I have found it to be a bad thing in most, most instances. In fact, I find so many people hide behind religiosity And they think they have no need for salvation as a free gift from God's grace. They attend a church service, say a little prayer, sing a few songs, and they feel they're all right with God. And I have talked to people that have it all figured out. They don't attend church services at all. They say, well, you know, I used to be bad. I'm doing better. And I I keep getting a little better, and I think it'll all weigh out in the end. And I think God looks at that, and I think I'm okay. As long as I keep getting better, I think the the scale is going to be on my side. And I just think, so sad. It is so hard to crack that shell when you try to witness to somebody that we need God's grace. We need that forgiveness of sins that Jesus paid on the cross. It doesn't matter whether you're Catholic, Mormon, Buddhist, Jehovah Witness, or some here at Calvary Chapel, Buell. Man's religion can be a hindrance to a person's walk with God and a true salvation through the blood of Christ. Turn with me to Isaiah. Chapter 1. I've read this many times, but it never ceases to pierce my heart every time I read it. Because I think about some of the sacrifices we make in the house of God. Starting at verse 10, Isaiah chapter 1 goes this. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, 
says the Lord. I, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of the lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? You trample my courts. Before Bring no more futile sacrifices. And I thought about that, that verse right there and I thought, that's empty sacrifices. That could be anything. That could be a prayer at the altar. That could be our worship service on Sunday morning. If our heart's not in check. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacrifice meetings. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doing from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Hear this. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, They shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. As the prophet Samuel warned Saul, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Ecclesiastes verse 2. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Sometimes we make vows we cannot keep. Or we fail to keep them. It is important to be careful of what we speak before we make a vow to God. And if you do, keep it. And if you make a vow to anyone, be a man of your word. Be a man or a woman of your word. Don't be quick to speak. James says, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Before we open our mouth, it is good to remember that God is in heaven and you are here on earth. In other words, God is infinite above you. Let him speak. Jesus warned of against rash vows in Matthew 5. Verse 33 goes, Again, you have heard that it is said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear to your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yeses be yes, and your noes be no. 
And whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Jesus taught that vows are binding. In fact, when you make a vow, you're confessing that you don't always keep, keep your word. When you say, I swear, I swear by my mom. I swear to God. You're saying, well, the other times were, were, were you not true to your word? Don't swear by an oath at all. We need to be, we need to make our yeses yeses and our noes no. I couldn't help but think of, uh, he says, uh, God is in heaven and you are here on earth, so let your words, I hear a song there. The essential fact between God's righteousness, might, and power, and our sinful mortality should cause us to shake and tremble, to revere God Almighty. Verse 3 goes, For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. Activity, the word is inyan in Hebrew, might also be translated concern. Dreams are often the product of natural anxieties, cares, and concerns with little meaning behind them, just as a fool with many words speaks. As a fool's voice is known by as many words, how important it is that we remember this. You know, and Jesus taught on this. If you turn with me to Matthew, uh, Matthew 6. Starting at verse 5. Matthew 6. He says, But you, when you pray, go to your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in the secret place will reward you openly. And when you pray, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. You know, I, I just thought about, you know, God hears before we even speak. And uh, he knows our heart. And uh, he sees all things. Going to verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not lay, delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. And if you make a vow, better make sure you keep it. Pay what you have vowed. If you owe, pay up. But it is better not to make a vow at all to God. Verse 5 goes, Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. See, I told you. (laughs) 
Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity, but fear God. People make empty vows because they live in a religious dream world. They think that words are the same as deeds. Their worship is not sincere. Their words are also not dependable. I have seen people make empty vows, promises, break them over and over again and say, I'm sorry. They practice make-believe religion and neither glorify God nor build Christian character. And he says, but fear God. And this is the central theme of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Because I couldn't help but think of Solomon at his old age, thought, I've really gotten off track. Don't make mistakes I made. And that word fear God is not like to be afraid of God. It means to have a reverence, an awe, and wonder in the response of his glory. I couldn't help but think of maybe all the times that he went down to the temple and made promises and vows before God and never kept them. Made a vow to become king and be a righteous king, and he was not. About all the time he wrote psalms to the Lord and they were empty words because he never kept them. This is what David said in Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Do me a favor and turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Where Jesus... Jesus himself teaches on the fear of the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast you into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Said the robin to the sparrow, I would really like to know, anxious human beings being rushed about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, that I think it must be, they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. I happened to run into that and I, and I thought of that, that uh, 
We have a heavenly father that loves us very much. And it's that reverence that we should have for a God that loves us so much that he sent his only begotten son. God knows the most minute details of our life. Every detail of what we do, what we say, what we think here on earth. Every hair on our head, yes, even me. Even if we have no hair, he counts them and he loves us anyway. He loves you and me more than we will ever know here on earth. To fear God means to respond to him correctly. Verse 8 goes, For you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in the province. Do not marvel at the matter, for high official watches over high official, and higher official over, over them. Solomon went to City Hall, where he again witnessed the corrupt politicians oppressing the poor. The remarkable thing that really got me was that Solomon wrote, don't be surprised at this. He certainly didn't approve of it. But he knew too much about the human heart to expect anything different. Verse 9 goes, Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. Now this was a difficult verse to understand and major translations do not agree on this one. The general idea is in spite of corrupt, corruption and bureaucracy, all people live by God's grace and his provision for the earth. It's been said, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. The only satisfaction we have is knowing that God is higher than all. And he will see that all accounts are settled someday. Verse 10 goes, He he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. And Solomon hits on this over and over again because I think he lived it. He had abundance more than any man before or after him, and it never satisfied. People who love money never are satisfied. There's something in man that seems to always want more. Desire always outruns possessions, no matter how much we acquire. Wealth does not buy contentment, and money can't buy love. I think there's another song there. (laughs) This is the third time Solomon addresses the issue of vanity of wealth, because it is a great illusion for all men. I think we all, at one time or another, chase our careers and chase possessions, thinking they'll satisfy, and they leave you empty inside. 
This is what Paul wrote to Timothy. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Verse 11 says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owner except to see them with their eyes? There's no escaping the fact that we need money to live here on earth for our provisions. Money of itself is always that magic cure solution to all our problems. In fact, when someone usually gets wealthy, relatives and long-lost friends come out of the woodwork and stand at your door. So what profit have the owners? You're always stuck with them or kick them out and lose friends and family. John Wesley, the co-founder of the Methodist Church, told his people, Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Wesley could have been one of the most richest men that ever lived. But he gave it all away. He lived generously and lived simply. Verse 12 goes on to say, The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. When it comes down to restful sleep, a working man has the advantage. There are few things more satisfying and sweeter than a good night's sleep after a hard day's work. But across town, there's a rich man who worries and wonders all night about stocks, bonds, losses and profits, thieves and crooks. I have to wonder who's, who's better off. I'd rather have a good night's sleep. Verse 13, he goes, And there is a severe evil which have seen under the sun. Riches keep from their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. This also is a very severe evil. Just exactly as he came, he shall, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? Solomon tells a story of a man who hoarded his riches to his hurt. And when he had lost it all through bad investments and money deals, he was left with nothing, empty-handed and broke. And he says, as he has come from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, as he shall take nothing from his labor, so he may carry away in his hand. Paul told Timothy, for we brought nothing into this world, and certainly we can carry nothing out. John D. Rockefeller, at the age of 53, was the world's only billionaire, earning about $1 million a week. He was a very sick man, living on crackers and milk, could not sleep and could not eat. One day he started giving all his money away. His wealth changed 
His health changed, and he lived to celebrate 98 years. Verse 17 goes, All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Turn with me to Job chapter 1. And I couldn't help but think of Job, because... uh, Satan asked God if he could test Job. And God said, go ahead, he's my servant. But you can't touch his body. And the devil said, he will curse you to your face. And I want to take it at verse 18. And at 18, he had already lost his livestock, his property, his servants, And they were coming to tell him him that his children had died. And this is what it says. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job was faithful. And worshiped God and fell down and said, Naked I came, naked I'll return. The Lord gave, the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I long to have that heart of Job. Oh, that all of us would have a heart like Job. Verse 19 goes, verse 18. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for you to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life when God gave him. For it is his inheritance. The thing that is fitting and good is to work faithfully. Enjoy this life and accept it. All is a gracious gift of God. Even our work is a gift from God. See, life at at its very best is brief. And our time here is short. So why not live it to the fullest while we can and live it to the glory of God? This is wise counsel. Verse 19 goes, As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, and to give him power to eat of it, to receive his inheritance and rejoy his labor. This is the gift of God. There are three ways to get wealth. You can either earn it, steal it, or receive it as a gift of God. Gang, I'm a very rich man. but I don't have much in my bank account. 
God has blessed me beyond measure. And I'm sure if I had a lot of money, I wouldn't be very good with it. Solomon saw the blessings of life as God's gift to those who work, who accept that work as a favor of God. Verse 20 goes, For he, who, for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. I believe that a person who rejoices in God's daily blessings never has regrets. Because the person that does that will not need to look back with sorrow of his past. For God gives him joy. You know the time to start storing up happy memories is now. King David wrote this in Psalm 90. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto to wisdom. It's all a matter of focus, gang. If our emphasis is on the gifts, then we will consume us and they will die with us. If our emphasis is over the giver, the gifts are a blessing and can be used for his glory. And believe me, gang, we're blessed beyond measure. Every single one of us have a lot to be thankful for. This leads to contentment and joy in the Lord. In Philippians 4, Paul wrote, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned to, in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, this is hard work. I... Uh, I work all, all day, all week long. I come home and I study and I put in about 15 to 20 hours studying for a 45-minute sermon. And uh, it's the joy of my heart. It's a blessing to stand here before you and teach and to pour out my heart and, and to go through the Scripture. And Joni asked me, why do you do this? Because sometimes I'm caught at 1 o'clock in the morning. I've got to be to work at, at 7. But it's a joy. And once you get into it and you study and you start devouring and eating God's word, it becomes not work. But it just becomes a joy. I am learning to be content in whatever the Lord has for me. I know I can do all things through Jesus Christ, for it's he that strengthens me. He lives in me. I am learning to enjoy life to the fullest and to be satisfied and content in all things, even the trials that God puts me through and takes me through. I think it is important that every one of us number our days because we do not know when that day will come. And at the very best, our life here 
is but a puff, a vapor. We're here for such a short time and we're to live it, enjoy it, embrace it, glorify God with it. God knows our days and he has great plans for each and every one of us. He has a use for everyone, for every one of us is unique to our God. And he is the strength of each one of us. He is the author and finisher of our faith. Going back to our worship in the house of God, I read a story of a dinner guest at Cambridge College who was asked to say grace before the meal. To make matters worse, it was to be said in Latin. Knowing neither God nor Latin, the quick-thinking fellow intoned, Omo, Lux, Domestos, Probat, Ajax, Amen. After repeating Amen, everybody sat down to eat. No one had noticed. For many, a worship service can become meaninglessness, exercise before God. But our Father in heaven, He knows. He knows when our worship is sincere and from our heart. He knows everything. He knows who worship in truth and in the spirit. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this time in your word, Lord. And uh, Lord, I just thank, for, thank you for everybody that took time of their evening to come and, and open your word. Lord, I, uh, I pray and I know that you blessed our time together. Lord, and uh, you're blessed by your church. Lord, help us that, uh, that we wouldn't give the sacrifice of fools. Lord, that we would be like this tax collector that came and pounded his chest and poured out his heart to you, Lord. For I want to be humble before you. that I could be exalted before you one day. Lord, help us to all gather treasures in heaven, Lord, that we could throw our crowns before your feet. Lord, I just thank you, Lord, that, uh, that you use broken vessels like us. It's only broken things that you use, Lord, and I thank you for that. Lord, may we be broken before you. Lord, we just thank you for this time and may you be glorified in us. Lord, we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.